good evening. Welcome. Uh, we are so excited to be starting our Wednesday night services back again. We took a break for the summer for those of you who aren't normally with us on, on uh, Wednesday nights. And uh, we run for another 12 weeks and then we take a break here in December. A little more uh, time off. We're kind of the lazy community. We like to take time off. So, But um, this is just a fun time. Uh, before we get started, let, let me ask our ushers if they um, would come forward. If, if you're a regular part of this community, one of the ways that we worship God is by um, the giving of what we have, the first fruits, Scripture calls it, and, and that's our offering. And I know a lot of you have come prepared with tithes and offerings, so this is the time for that. Uh, if, if you're a guest, again, please don't feel compelled to give in any way, but as those plates come by, thank you. Uh, Timberline family for your faithfulness and being willing to uh, give regularly. Um, if if you are new with us, and we go ahead. You know, we've already prayed, so you go ahead and pass those plates, ushers. Um, if you are with uh, new to this setting here, we are a community of believers um, seeking to humbly submit the whole of our lives, everything of what it means to be me, to the the authority of this one man named Jesus Christ, because we, he told us that as we do that, he will actually sow into us his Holy Spirit, who sets our heart ablaze, who gives new energy, new passion, a, really a new mission for life, so that we can live lives which are, which are characterized by a heart which says, you know what, I'll, I'll sacrifice anything for, for this kingdom thing, for Jesus, for his mission. And as I extend that creative, redemptive love to others, that's what kind of community we are humbly seeking to be. And so if you're a guest, we, we just welcome you. If, if you're kind of exploring this whole uh, Jesus thing, we welcome you. We, we invite you to, to belong. And so these evenings are made up of, of times of worship, uh, looking at scripture, studying God's word. We believe that he has spoken uniquely to us through that. And then just community, just being together. So we take like, like the last five, ten minutes of our night. We end a little early. And we, we've got kind of some decaf coffee and snacks and water and stuff set up at the back. And we just kind of hang out. So I would invite you to do that at the end just to kind of be together. So I hope you'll, hope you'll come back and be a part of this community. If you picked up a bulletin on your way in, let me, let me real quickly mention a couple things on that. Uh, on the back, we have our what we call our equip adult education classes starting this Sunday. And uh, this is just a great opportunity as you're looking for smaller settings. One of the challenges in a big church is to find small communities where, where you can build relationships, but also then grow in your, in your faith. And uh, quick classes are a great opportunity for that. So we've got a lot of them starting this, this weekend. Check those out. And then below that, we're, we're always needing help as, as this Wednesday night community just to facilitate what we do. Uh, we, we've got some fantastic volunteers who are really like great cooks, uh, which is one of my favorite spiritual gifts because I don't have it, um, cooking. And so they, they cook for all our volunteers and feed us ahead of time. Um, if that's something that like you're gifted at, we would love to have you on that team. We need help with our um, communion uh, serving. We put in their baking bread. I don't think it's the baking bread part we need help with. It's the serving and the cleanup afterwards. So if you can help with that, we would love to have you do that. Um, would you open up your Bibles if you brought them? We're going we're gonna to jump into the, the very first book of the Bible, 
for a specific reason, uh, Genesis chapter 1. And if, if you don't have a Bible, would you let us know? We would love to put one in your hands, give you one as a gift. If you do have one, let me encourage you to bring that regularly as we familiarize ourselves with how to navigate through this, this text. We believe this is the primary way that, that God speaks to us and calls us into apprenticeship. So let's read uh, Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to read just verses 26 through 28. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. This falls right on the, on the heels of uh, this poetic description of God's creation of the cosmos, okay, and of the world, and, and creating habitats for everything. And then he, he ends by saying this, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. We're starting a new series called Being Human. And kind of the key idea is, is, is this concept of the image of God, because this, this is something that like theologians and, and students of, of, of Scripture and the average person ha has kind of just thought about and explored and, and dug into for centuries. What, is, what does this mean? And I would suggest that it, it's really a, a, a linchpin question whether or not we're made in the image of God for so many different areas. And so the subtitle of our of our series is we're looking at like sexuality. How, how does this impact that? What about work and vocation, my calling, things that I get involved in, hobbies? How does that affect that? What about, what about the life of the mind, thinking? Like how does, how does that impact that? Just everything, the good, the evil that we experience in our lives. How do we think about what it means to be human? And I don't know if there are many more important questions than that and really pressing questions for our world today. But if if humanity is really made in the image of God, you guys, there are enormous implications on, on every corner of your life. Because if it's true, as, as one person has said, if, if we really bear the image of God, if God owns us and all, all this sort of thing, he said, there's not one square inch of creation over which God does not yell, mine. <laughs> Think about that. You know, that my imagination, my hobbies, my relationships, my, my vocation, my call, everything, he says, mine. And so, huge implications, you guys, with this whole concept of the image of God. And so, with, with week one here, we're just kind of opening this up. We want to get a general understanding, okay, what, you know, what is scripture talking about when it talks about the image and the kind of the parallel word is likeness, the image and the likeness of God. Who are we? Psalm chapter 8, uh, one of ancient Israel's most gifted poets and artists, King David, reflected on this same question. He was kind of thinking back about the whole Genesis creation concept, you know, and he says in, in uh, Psalm 8, Yahweh our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. 
Through the praises of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, this is all Genesis language, creation, right? Remember, creation ends with humanity. He says, oh, no, when, when I think about all this stuff, verse 4, he says, what is mankind that you're mindful of him? Humanity that you care for. Like, what, what, is, what does it mean to be human? This seems to be this immediate question as we think about this. How do we best explain ourselves? Have you ever thought about this? Why is this question so poorly understood, right? Because think about it. I mean, yourself, who you are, is the only thing you have immediate direct knowledge of. Your spouse, your friends, your, your family, your job, the world, everything else outside of us, we, we have knowledge secondarily, which is to say knowledge comes to us mediated through some other thing. But the self is the one, it does, I don't, the, I just know myself immediately, right? It's not mediated through any process. And yet, I would suggest, it's the thing that oftentimes we know least, we are least familiar with. We understand poorest of all of it. And yet we know so much about the world. Think a little bit about this. I was reading one author this week who was talking about our, our expanding knowledge of the, of the world and the universe. And he was, he was talking about the speed of light. You know, he said, you know, we've been able to measure this, how, how, how fast light goes. 186,000 miles per second is the speed of light. And he goes on to say, which is so fast that in the time it takes you to snap your fingers like that, he says, um, Light circumnavigates the globe a half a dozen times in that amount of time. There are more than 80 billion galaxies in our universe. This equates, by the way, to about 10 galaxies uh, per person in the world, if we, if we could kind of own them and you know, split them up, I guess. Um, you are on a planet that's rotating 1,000 miles per hour. And like clockwork, the speed of the Earth going around is, is approaching 67,000 miles per hour. You know, sometimes, you know, you, you saw Dustin up here leading Dustin Camping. He's, he's like this star runner, does marathons and all this kind of stuff. And, and I'm a slob compared to him. And, you know, I always have to remind him that, you know, I'm on this planet that's going that fast. You know, every single day I travel more than 1.5 million miles through space. You know, so take that, Dustin Camping. Um, and yet with all of our knowledge of the world, all of our knowledge of space and time and, and others and all these sorts of things, we know so little about the inner world, our inner life. Listen to uh, G.K. Chesterton, the, this, this great thinker of the past century. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, we've all read in scientific books and indeed even in romances the story of the man who has forgotten his name. This man walks about the streets and can see and appreciate everything, only he cannot remember who he is. Well, every man is that man in the story, he says. Every man has forgotten who he is. And he ends with saying, one may understand the cosmos, but never the ego. The self is more distant than any star. The self is more distant than any star. See, I'd suggest that what we are, who we are, our nature, remains the most pressing question 
we will ever encounter, possibly, in our lives. And one of the most radical things that, that this ancient people said was what we have in Genesis 27. I'm sorry, Genesis 2.27, verse 27. So God created man in his own image, he says. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. You guys, this idea blew apart the worldview of the ancient world. Absolutely blew it up. They, they had never heard anything quite like, they heard something close to it, but not quite like this. See, in the ancient world, only kings were uh, descendants of the gods. In fact, a king would say, you know, I, I am the son of this god, or I am the son of this god. In the ancient Near Easter, you go forward, even the Romans, they would say, you know, uh, Augustus or another Caesar, he is the son of a particular guy. He had divinity, but it was only the kings. See, the average, average people, you and I, we're expendable, right? We're tools to be used for the kings or the sons of the gods. But all of a sudden, a little group of people called the Hebrews made a radical claim that changed the entire world. And that is that God had made, if I can write this up here. God had made all of humanity in his own image and in his own likeness. Now think about for a second, um, think about this. Ancient world, they use these words, image and likeness, okay? What did that mean? Well, when a king would, would like go to take over another, another country, maybe he, he wanted to expand his borders, he would take over. What he would often do is he would, he would ask uh, those, the, the artisans in his, in his kingdom, say, I want a statue of me, and I want it placed right in this, in this new land that I'm taking over in like a place of prominence where everyone can see it, and I want it to bear my likeness, so they will know this is the king who rules here. Or sometimes they would do a stele. These are these kind of uh, engraved, you know, reliefs, and sometimes they would have pictures, images of the, of the king, the son of the god, or it, it would have uh, just statements of his, here's how I am, here's how I rule, here's what my kingdom is like, here's what it means to live in my kingdom, which, by the way, you're now in. And it was used as a, as a territory marker, so they would set them up and say, my kingdom expands from here. And they would set another one up all the way to here. Okay? Now, in light of that, think about how the ancient world read this radical idea here. Genesis, uh, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. See, this, this is a totally unique idea because I think what he was saying was that now all of the sudden humanity humanity all of humanity bears the image what's that saying it's saying you're you're like this reflection of me of this creative redemptive love to my world you also set the territory and boundary markers of what I own which is kind of interesting when God says be fruitful multiply fill the whole earth what's he saying guess what's mine everywhere. And everywhere you step foot, it will be proclaimed, this is my world, because there's not one inch of the world over which God does not scream, mine. 
But he uses his image to do it. He uses us. And as you step into your workplace, there is this unique thing going on. And you know what? This isn't just for Christians. Every single one of us, no matter how far away we get from God, cannot destroy this, this image, this likeness. We are image bearers, reflectors of this God. All of creation, I would suggest, is God's art, his art piece. But, but humanity, more than any, anything else, any other, you know, there's animals and there's birds and, you know, things in the sea and trees and, all, you know, the cosmos and there's stars and all this. But of all of that, humanity somehow had this totally unique quality, among other things, but of being made in the image of God. And of course, this is what we're going to kind of unfold and open up and look at implications over the next seven weeks here. Um, all of creation was his. There's a friend of mine, uh, some of you guys know Dave Clack, or David Clack. He's got an uh, illustrated light gallery. It's, it's in Old Town. It's this gorgeous gallery with all this, all this artwork. And as I was talking to uh, Dave, I was talking about kind of, you know, like what I want to do in this series. And, you know, I want to talk about this whole idea of humanity as, as God's art. And so I said, if you guys have been down to the gallery, I mean, it's just gorgeous. It's, you know, he's this local artist, great stuff. He goes on these hiking trips. Um, this, is, this is in the um, southwest in some mountains. Mount, Mount, this is kind of a weird name. Mount Sneffels is the name. Of it. Not Sniffles, but Sneffels. And uh, he told me that you know, he had to hike like six miles to get out there. And it took him like 30 minutes just to position himself to get the right spot. And then he said about to wait about an hour for the light to be ju- you know, just the right spot. And this is the kind of camera where you're throwing the, you know, the kind of the, what is that thing? A little black cloth thing over your head and you know, taking pictures. And uh, I said, like, how many, you know, how many times do you get good pictures when you go out? Because he'll go on these 10-day hiking trips. And, and he says the ratio can be as low as, like, 1 to 10. I've, I've been gone for hiking, you know, trips, and I come back with this 90-pound back, uh, pack on my back, you know, with nothing. Because he's got real high, high expectations of, uh, of art. And, um, and so I said, you know, could you print this one for it? This is cool. You know, can we, and he goes, yeah. And this, the, the retail value on this thing is, like, $3,900 framed. I mean, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. One of, my, one of my favorite thinkers in all of history is, is this guy, this 16th century French guy. His name was Blaise Pascal. And Blaise Pascal was maybe one of the most amazing minds in history. He was a mathematician. I don't, I don't understand anything about math. And, and, and he was the scientist. Uh, he, he proved the existence of a, um, of a vacuum he was the father of, of modern computers. He invented the first calculator. I mean, this guy was just a genius philosopher, theologian. But more than anything else, his heart was on fire by the Holy Spirit. He loved God deeply. Lived in pain. He died when he was my age, 38 years old. And he, ever since he was 18 years old, he said, I, I, never, I don't remember a day that I didn't have pain. Suffered with a lot of pain in his life. And... He, he wrote, no one found his writing still, he was dead. He, he would write these little random thoughts and, and he would take his jacket and sew them in the seam of his jacket. And uh, when he died, it was found much later, they opened up and there's stuff in his jacket and they opened up and, and they you know, collected them all and there's these, these pensées or reflections and it's all these thoughts. And what Pascal wrestled with maybe more than anything else in the whole world is what does it mean to be made in the image of God? 
Because as, as he viewed his world and, him, and as he viewed his own heart, he said, there's this paradox. Like, as I, as I look at who we are, you know, Genesis talks about us being in the image of God. This, you know, like this beauty. Think about the things, you know, that we do, that we accomplish. The greatness of humanity. The things we've done. Right? And he says, it's, it's like this masterpiece. Humanity is awesome. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. But he said, but you know what? Genesis 3 talks about this idea that we are deeply broken. Right? Sin has entered the world. We've, we've rebelled against God. And so we now live in this state of, of constant self-rule. The biblical word for that is sin. Of setting ourselves up as the king, the standard. And he said, now, now we're not just this masterpiece. We're like defaced art. You ever seen vandalism? Just absolute junk? Ever seen someone just take something? And just, just destroy it. Because see, that's, that's what sin is. It takes something that is so beautiful. And see, now, if I had done that to a piece of wood, driftwood, who cares, right? Why? Because it's driftwood. You're vandalizing driftwood. Who cares? Do it to a masterpiece, and it's tragic, right? Because it's meant to be something beautiful. And Pascal said, what it means to be human is to be an absolute masterpiece, something gorgeous, and yet it's, it's defaced, right? Someone has vandalized it. And so every time you see it, you see both. You know, you kind of get both. You go, man, that's beautiful. Oh, but it's messy. It's kind of broken. But here's the thing. The fact that you recognize your brokenness in yourself and others speaks to your greatness, right? You're not sad about, you know, a, you know, a bug dead along the side of the road or a, or a fish who doesn't meet his potential, right? Because they're not great. <laughs> what about a person? Why do we care so much about human trafficking? Why do, why do we cry when we hear stories from our teens who come back and they walk the ladies who walk the streets in the red light district and they say, I saw a little girl, probably six, seven, and she was in a cage. You know, she goes back and forth between the cage to being sexually abused and back in the cage and this is her life and she'll probably die pretty soon because she'll get sick. Why is that so tragic? Why would we give everything to go to that? Because the image of God is beautiful. And its destruction is the most tragic thing you'll ever experience. And the reality is, you guys, I'm not talking about something out there. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about your heart and your life. This is something closer to us, and yet, as Chesterton says, understood less than the most distant stars. And he went on to say, oftentimes the reason why we don't think about it is because it's so uncomfortable. And so we do things like we have, we have constant uh, trivia, noise, things going on, because the minute things are quiet, have you ever been, it's quiet and you're just so uncomfortable, like by yourself? You're like, mm -hmm. you know. Pascal says it's because in those moments we start having little 
images, pictures of our brokenness, of the tears and the messes. And I don't like that, so I just, I forget it and I amuse myself, right? I don't, I don't think, I try to get involved. I, I get involved in trivia, trivial things, stay busy, so I don't have to think about the deep brokenness of my own heart. We are capable of great wickedness and great beauty at the same time. And as we were saying, more than, more than any other animals, what's so different about us is we think about this. The other animals don't think about their state, their condition. We reflect on it. We're bothered by this, by the beauty and the tragic. Um, after Virginia Tech, do you remember the shootings that took place at that school a few years ago? One, one commentator was writing about, and these words stood out to me because it, it speaks to this defaced art thing here. He said, why does a young student go on a homicidal rampage at Virginia Tech, murdering dozens of innocent people and then killing himself? Why does such evil strike so hard and so erratically? But he goes on to say, in spite of all these upsurges of human evil, we are also struck by the beauty, courage, and genius wrought by human hands, hearts, and minds. After every tragedy, he goes on to say, September 11, 2001, or at Virginia Tech, heroes emerge who rescue the living, comfort the dying, and put others above themselves in spontaneous acts of altruism. Talk about a paradox of the human heart. What's this about? Greatness and wickedness all in one. Pascal wrote this. He said, what sort of freak then is man? Isn't that great? How novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, he said. How prodigious, judge of all things, feeble earthworm, repository of truth, sink of doubt and error, the glory and the refuse of the universe. Is that right? The glory of the universe, remember? Because God said, this is my crowning creation, the best thing I've done, my best masterpiece, the glory of all the universe, and yet the trash heap of the universe. What a paradox. And so we scan the heights and the depths of who we are, of the good and the evil. So where do we start? Well, we start with God. So you guys, this is why if, if this whole image of God thing is true, this is why theology is so stinking important. Theology means a study of God. What is he like? I don't mean from a distance like that's interesting and take a test. I'm saying getting to know this God who has revealed himself in scripture, most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. Because if I'm made in his image, if I know him and he says, you're, you're a reflection of me, you're like I am in so many ways. You have these certain qualities that, that, I, that I've sown inside you. I will never understand myself unless I start with him, right? That's why we have to give ourselves to knowing this God personally because I'll never know myself if I do not know him. And tragically, I will have a misunderstanding of myself, which I would suggest is the most dangerous thing in all of the world. That's why the awful things happen because we misunderstand what it means to be human. Why is this so important? Think, think about the different worldviews. Um, this is true in the ancient world. These ideas were there then. It's true in our world today. Um, modern kind of secularism, okay? No God, the earth is all the real physical universe. You're just kind of a meat machine sort of thing. The physical universe, 
Um, or if you go to kind of uh, Eastern spirituality, this was around in the ancient world, it's around today. These are these two powerful and imposing uh, philosophies, worldviews that we come in contact with. See, um, they either recognize greatness or they recognize misery, but they have a hard time making sense of both. And so they will tend to lean toward one or the other. Modern secularism um, sees no glory. It, it, it recognizes only kind of the beastly part, the brokenness of humanity. Eastern spirituality uh, says, well, we, you just don't know. You're actually all glory. You're divine. Everything is God. Everything is good. Evil's an illusion. And if you just remembered, if you kind of did spiritual practices in order to gain this higher state of consciousness, you would remember you are pure light. You're pure God. And you can pick up tons of books in the bookstore today that, that have this idea that only give credit to the glory, to the beauty, but sweep away and discount the, the misery, the wretchedness of who we are. The problem is, neither one of these, if they're not true, will ever allow for any social reform. They'll never allow for personal reform in any way. But see, Christianity... This Jesus thing teaches that, listen to how Pascal says it, Christianity that teaches about man's greatness and misery inspires self-esteem, you're made in the image of God, as well as self-contempt. You are deeply flawed and broken and it goes to your very heart. You can't blame anyone else but yourself. <laughs> he says it inspires love and also hate. And he goes on to say other religions or philosophies tend to take sides it's not interesting. They tend to take sides on it. So you'll see them emphasize one or the other. One of my favorite books in the Old Testament is the book of Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're, in the Hebrew Bible, they're actually just one book. We've kind of broken them out too, but these two you know, characters kind of involved in the same story. They've, these, they've been in exile, and they've been brought back to their land. But it's a new generation. It was their parents and their parents' parents who were, they don't remember what it was like, so they're, they're brand new. They, you know, they, don't, they don't remember scripture. They've never heard it before because it's been banned. They haven't done sacrifices. And they're brought back. And there's this whole rebuilding of the wall process because it gives identity and who we are. And after it's all done, and they're kind of like, okay, we did it. It's done. It says homes aren't built yet. They're not living there. But, but it's there. It says, they said to Ezra the scribe, bring out this word of God thing to us. And read it to us. Because we don't know it. We've heard stories, but we don't know it. And as Ezra came out, and it says he stood up in a place, they built something special. It said just for this occasion, something high, probably so they could see him, his voice could be heard. He stood up, and it says he started reading. And kind of every time he stopped, apparently, they kind of, no, 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 no. Keep, keep going. And it said they stood there for six hours. Does that make you feel lazy? You're here for like 45 minutes, and you're already wondering when's, when's Brent going to be done. But... Six hours they stood there for. And it said at times they wept because they, in their generation had never heard this. They'd never heard this. You know why they wept? You know why it was so meaningful? You know, they said keep going because it told them who they were and what they were intended. It explained this stuff, all this. It explained it because they'd been in a foreign world which kind of gave one or the other but it finally explained, and it said, oh, that makes sense. That's who we are. That's what we're made for. 
It told them about their origin, their meaning, their morality, their destiny, all the things we're going to talk about in this series. It told them. See, the biblical account of our creation and fall best fits our experience of human life. However, we have to listen to God. We have to know scripture. We have to go back to that book. And like the people say, tell me, tell me my story again. I'm like that man in Chesterton's story. I've forgotten. I'm walking the streets and I'm seeing stuff and I'm interacting and I'm having meals. And, but I've forgotten who I am. Tell me the old story of who I am. Another image that uh, Blaise Pascal used that I love, you know, beyond the defaced art, he said, we're also kind of like deposed royalty. You know what that is? Kings and queens who had a throne, but they've been kicked out. So that very much matches if you've read Genesis. God, God banishes them from the garden, and the king and queen kind of go walking off in shame. And he says, that's kind of our experience. We're, we're deposed royalty. See, because who's most sad about not being a king except someone who was meant to be a king, Right? Who's not most sad about being a queen except someone who was meant to be a queen? But Pascal also saw something else really cool in the Gospels. That the biblical account reveals that there is a redeemer for royal ruins, as he called it. Himself a king, a royal one, who became a man in order to rescue those who are east of Eden, kicked out deposed from their thrones and standing at the brink of eternity, not understanding the thing closest to themselves. It's like an eye that can see everything else in the universe except itself. It doesn't know itself. And Pascal says that in him, in Jesus, we find hope for our deposed condition, our defaced condition. Here are his words. Jesus is a God whom we can approach without pride, and before whom we can humble ourselves without despair. Isn't that interesting? To live a life where you can approach the king of kings without pride, and yet kneel at his feet without despair. See, no other worldview will offer that. You'll either live in despair, or you'll live in absolute pride and arrogance. But the gospel has a third way. It introduces something different that makes sense of this and recognizes our greatness, keeps pride out, recognizes my brokenness, but doesn't leave me in absolute, utter despair and misery. Though we are royal ruins, we can find total forgiveness. Redemption. Scripture speaks of this language of eternal life. That's like eternal kingship. <laughs> Being on that throne eternally. Listen, listen to, and I want to close with this. Romans chapter 5, which speaks of uh, verse 1 through 5, which speaks of this reality of the defaced art and yet the hope for redemption, which is where we'll get on the very last week. The image of God or humanity realized. Romans chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our own sufferings. 
because we know that the suf that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In verse 6, you see at just, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, defaced, deposed, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God, he demonstrates this hurricane-like love, Paul says, by doing this. While we were still sinners, while we were still defaced, rebellious, sick, dying, despicable, awful creatures. While we were yet sinners, he says, Christ died for us. The king deposed himself from his throne in order to go down and give what we could never get on our own. Rebuilt what it means. And so we now live in this reality where we commit ourselves, our lives to Christ, and he says, if you do that, I have this change agent. It's the person of the Holy Spirit, and I'll sow it inside you in such a way that it'll begin this, this new creation process, and it begins changing what you want, your desires, inter internal stuff, the stuff that, remember, I, I don't even know what I'm made up by. I don't get it. And he goes, I got it. I know, and I can fix it. But yet we live in this tension. I am, I am still the defaced art, and yet God has promised, he has sworn, and he says, the promises I've given a down payment, Christ, and he's given something you'd be sure of, the Holy Spirit, that one day, this picture, which at times looks so broken and so messed up and so defaced, it'll be the most beautiful, radiant picture you've ever seen in your life. And you'll stand before one who will say, well done, good. That's a creation word, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. Now come and enjoy would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we are just, we are in awe of a God who would step down off of his throne to go seek ones who sought to depose him, enemies, sinners, rebels. And you put yourselves in the hands of rebels. And you allowed to be, allowed yourself to be sacrificed the death we deserve. But the beauty is, is that in that process, it was, it was a judo move. And you ended up taking the brokenness and you swallowed it. And then you gave life. And God, we are so grateful that we can now live in this new life. And Lord, I pray that this week, as, as we even reflect back and as you apply these truths of scripture to our lives, God, as we go into workplaces and into homes, into relationships, maybe that are really broken, there's some big tears and there's vandalism and there's deep brokenness. God, that you will, through the power of your Holy Spirit, continue that process of spreading a life. Would you speak through us, speak through us as images 
image bearers of God in the places that you have placed us. And over the next few weeks, as we talk about work and vocation and all the different places that, that, that you place us and spheres of sovereignty that we have, little, little spheres, God, help us to just embrace this concept of what it means to be made in the image of God. Help us to just fix our minds on this whole idea of the image of God so that we would just be blown away by it and that day by day we would give more of our broken selves over to you so that we would actually find our true selves more fully. And we thank you, God, for that. We love you. Thank you for this community. God, may we be a people which reach out to each other, which do not hide the brokenness because we, we know we all have it and we care for others around us even in these times, these next few minutes as we get coffee and drinks and cookies and things like that. May, may we be your body and um, do marvelous things through us and in us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.